Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's event occurred in the year 1933, and as always, we'll find out what else happened that year. Well, in January, the London Underground diagram designed by Henry Beck is introduced to the public. March 12th saw the Great Depression, where Franklin Delano Roosevelt addresses the nation for the first time as President of the United States in the first of his fireside chats. The 28th of March sees the Imperial Airways Dixmond crash, where the Armstrong Whitworth Argosy biplane, City of Liverpool, catches fire in the air over Belgium and crashes, killing the crew of three and all 12 passengers. The deadliest accident in the history of British civil aviation to this date. The fire on board may have been started deliberately. On April the 11th, Aviator Bill Lancaster takes off from Limpney in England in an attempt to make a speed record to the Cape of Good Hope, but vanishes. His body was not found until nearly 30 years later in 1962 in the Sahara Desert. On the 27th of April, the Jessup and Son department store in Nottingham is acquired by the John Lewis Partnership. This becomes its first store outside London. And on the 2nd of May, there was the first sighting of the Loch Ness Monster. On the 17th of August, the release of the film The Private Life of Henry VIII, starring Charles Lawton, receives an Academy Award for the title role, making this the first film, making this the first British film to win an Oscar. And lastly, Albert Einstein makes several visits to Britain and campaigns against the Nazi regime in Germany, from which he has been exiled. October the 17th, scientist Albert Einstein arrived in the United States, where he settles permanently as a refugee from Nazi Germany and takes up a position at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. But our event occurred on the 1st of December 1933, and it involved... Reginald Ivor Hinks, aged 33, a door-to-door vacuum cleaner peddler. 
word of the week. And this week, the word I give you is... Dreng, which is a name given to a free peasant in Northumbria and sometimes in Yorkshire and Lancashire. The name usually implies that land was held in return for military service. Reginald Ivor Hinks was a door-to-door vacuum sailor peddler, but this wasn't the career he wanted. Having been sacked from several other jobs and discharged from the army for being slack, lazy and untidy. So, few choices were open to him. In 1929, he worked as a butler, adopting the pseudonym Reginald Percival, but was accused of stealing from his new employer and quickly dismissed. In 1933, he met Constance Anne Pullen, a divorcee with a child who lived in Bath with her 85-year-old father, retired master tailor James Pullen, who had had a successful shop in Dorking and had saved up a considerable sum. £2,000, or around 160000 in today's money. But alas, Mr Pullen had dementia, and Constance employed a nurse to help look after her ailing parent. This combination of wealth and vulnerability made the pensioner an irresistible target to the calculating and evil Hinks. After courting Constance for a brief time, Hinks and Constance were married and the salesman persuaded Mr Pullen to sell his shop and hand over £900 in proceeds to him. With this, Hinks bought a car and a house at Englishcombe Lane in Bath, into which the newly formed family moved in. There, Hinks dismissed the nurse, arguing that the expense was now unnecessary. He began spending more time with the old man, playing the part of the attentive son-in-law. Having taken over the care of Mr Pullen, Hinks would then go on to make regular trips into town, leaving his father-in-law alone for long periods of time in the hope that some accident would befall him. And then at night, when the pensioner would occasionally sleepwalk into the street, Hinks would follow him from a distance in the hopes that he would be run over. Hinks also put his frail father-in-law on a strict diet hoping that this would weaken him sufficiently to kill him. But Mr Pullen was made of sterner stuff, and these trials only managed to strengthen him. His impatience and frustration at the fact that his father-in-law just wouldn't die led to Hinks finally hatching a plan to simulate his father-in-law's suicide. He first tried leaving Mr Pullen in a bath, hoping he would fall asleep and drown. And when this failed to work, he came up with a plan that was foolproof. On December 1st, 1933, Reginald Hinks called the police and fire brigade to the family home, claiming that Mr Pullen had gassed himself. There, the old man was found on the kitchen floor, barely alive, 
Hink said he had discovered his father-in-law with his head in the gas oven, a raincoat over his head, to keep the fumes in. Mr. Pullen also had a bruise on the back of his head, something Hinks tried to explain away as an injury caused when he tried to remove him from the oven. A short time later, Mr. Pullen died, but something about the story didn't really ring true, and a post-mortem examination was ordered. Dr. J. M. Harper, police surgeon, was present at the post-mortem on the 3rd of December and said in court that he was struck by the bright colour of the blood. He also proclaimed, I have no doubt in my own mind that this bruise occurred before death. In my opinion, the colour of the bruise had not been affected by gas poisoning. It follows from that that the bruise occurred before gas poisoning. In court, Mr C.S. Elwell questioned Dr Harper. Was the bruise a very severe one? I should say it was severe, and it was undoubtedly very recent. Could it have been caused by a fall? Yes, a fall from some height. Was it consistent with a fall from a few inches? No, sir. (laughs) Word on the street. Today sees us at Nugent Hill in BS6, Bristol. This used to be the site of Nugent House, where Robert Nugent lived. Nugent was an MP for Bristol as well as a poet, who was a rather popular figure and tried to help the poor of the city. When Nugent passed away, he was a very rich man, mainly due to the fact that he married several times, and always to wealthy women. This led to a phrase coined by Walpole of to Nugentize, meaning to attempt to make oneself rich through marriage. In court, Dr Harper, the police surgeon, went on to say that on November the 16th, he had a message to say Mr Hinks wanted an appointment and when he arrived, he asked if the doctor had the power to cancel an order of lunacy appointing a committee to administer Mr Pullen's money, at which point he produced some documents. I inquired why he came to me, and he said he had recently purchased his house and he thought the money would be forthcoming from Mr Pullen. I informed him that I had nothing to do with it, and that he had made a mistake, as I had no power and could not deal with it. He went out to his wife, who was outside in a small motor car. I heard him say to her, he can do no good. Fireman W.R. Hall stated at the trial that when he arrived at the house, he saw Mr. Hinks, who remarked, he's gassed himself. Hall was taken to the kitchen where he saw Pullen's head was about a foot from the gas stove, and there was a hot water bottle lying next to the body. The coroner asked, Did you observe any smell of gas? To which he replied, very slight. Fireman Hall also said that on the previous night he had been called to the same address and was met at the bottom of the drive by the chief of police who took him to the bathroom. There he found Mr Pullen in the bath. There was no water in it and Mr Pullen was very pale and covered by a towel and blanket. Dr Charles Gibson had been called at the same time. An ambulance officer told him an old man had fainted or collapsed in the bath and the relatives had said that his face had turned black. When he arrived, he was informed by the son-in-law of the elderly gentleman that there was no need for his assistance, as the patient had recovered 
and was sitting up in bed calling for his supper. As it was classified as an urgent call, Dr Gibson went up anyway to check on the old man. Mr Pullen seemed to be in good colour and his face looked normal. He examined Pullen's heart and was surprised by its strength. There was no evidence of inhaled water. Dr Gibson went on to tell the court. The son-in-law made some remark to me about the old man having a weak heart and I replied, he has a very good heart. I was told that the old gentleman had been put in the bath for his weekly bath, that he left him while he went downstairs to fetch some clothes, and that when he came up, the old gentleman's head had slipped under the water and he was black in the face. I thought the son-in-law must have simply got excited and was exaggerating. After a trial lasting five days, and on the basis of the forensic evidence and his previous criminal enterprises, the jurors found Reginald Ivor Hinks guilty of the offence. Hinks, though, was defiant. When asked if he had anything to say about the ruling, he replied, I loved my wife, my home, my baby and Mr Pullen too much to wish to do them any injury at all. The three women on the jury were in tears and sobs of one could be heard across the court by the clerk as Hinks spoke. The verdict came back guilty and the judge sentenced him to hang. And that was when Hinks then made an appeal against the verdict. But the judge, Lord Hewitt, was not convinced and dismissed the appeal after only 30 minutes deliberation to a hushed court, saying... We think there was clear evidence of motive, and it is not denied that the summing up on that question is above criticism. In our opinion, there was clear evidence that Mr Pullen was neither mentally nor physically able to commit suicide in the manner suggested by the defence. Secondly, there is clear evidence that the bruise, being in the position which it was, could not have been caused by the mere pulling out of the head and its dropping a few inches upon the floor. And thirdly, that the bruise, being of the nature which it was, was caused before the head was put into the oven. When she heard those words, Mrs Hinks, who had been in court every day, cried throughout the judgment and passed out. She was carried out of court through the official's exit. Constance Hinks visited her husband in his cell with his solicitor shortly before the sentence was carried out, kind of suggesting that she believed in his innocence. At that time, the only sentence for murder was death, and on May 3rd, 1934, the calculating Hinks was hanged at Bristol. Are you tired of seeing the latest social media trends and fearing the worst? Does the daily news bring you down? Are you looking for something new and fun to listen to? Well, well that's, that's where, where we come, come in. in. Hi. Hi. It's Frankie. And Garrett. 
And we host The Ever-Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we present a fictional story utilizing the hottest happenings in the world and bring it straight to your earbuds. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just go to anchor.fm slash evertrendingpod and subscribe today. In the news today, a fight broke out in a pub in Bradley Stoke last night. It's believed to have started when a man proclaimed that he liked Beyonce, and his friend said, whatever floats your boat. The man then replied, no, that's buoyancy. Back in the day facts. Right, let's start off with the 21st of January in 1793, where, after being found guilty of treason by the French National Convention, Louis XVI of France is executed by guillotine. While Louis's blood dripped to the ground, several onlookers ran forward to dip their handkerchiefs in it. At his burial, in his coffin, Louis XVI, with his severed head placed between his feet, was buried in an unmarked grave with quicklime spread over his body in the nearby Madeline Cemetery. On the 22nd of January 1984, the Apple Macintosh, the first consumer computer to popularise the computer mouse and the graphical user interface, is introduced during a Super Bowl television commercial. On the 23rd of January 1849, Bristolian Elizabeth Blackwell is awarded her MD by the Geneva Medical College of Geneva, New York, becoming the United States' first female doctor. Also on the 23rd of January, but in 1941, Charles Lindbergh testifies before the US Congress and recommends that the United States negotiate a neutrality pact with Adolf Hitler. On the 24th of January, 1857, the University of Calcutta is formally founded as the first fully-fledged university in South Asia. Also on the 24th of January, but in 1972, Columbia Records releases Paul Simon, the second solo studio album by American singer-songwriter Paul Simon. It includes singles Mother and Child Reunion and Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard. The 25th of January 1858 sees The Wedding March by Felix Mendelssohn being played at the marriage of Queen Victoria's daughter Victoria and Frederick of Prussia, thus becoming a popular wedding processional. The bride, you see, loved Mendelssohn's music and he would often play for her while on his visits to Britain. And lastly, the 26th of January, 1808, saw the Rum Rebellion, the only successful, albeit short-lived, armed takeover of the government in New South Wales, Australia. It was staged by the New South Wales Corps in order to dispose Governor William Bly, Australia's first and only military coup, 
and the name derives from the illicit trade of the alcoholic drink rum in early Sydney, over which the Rung Corps, as a New South Wales Corps became known, had maintained a monopoly. Well, I'm afraid that means it's time for me to go. But don't worry, you'll find me same place, same time next week. And before I go, I really need to thank the people who brought today's story to life. And they include Bradley State Radio's very own Steve Shepherd, as well as Joe Wilson, Molly Jeffries and Julian Kendall from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol and Tony Allen. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 